she was pulling on his heart and he listened to her. And how do I know that? Because a week later, I bump into him in Walmart. And I said, you know, it just seemed like you were so close to becoming a Christian. He said, well, I gave it a lot of thought. I said, well, what's the holdup? Well, my wife doesn't buy this stuff. And basically says, I buy my wife. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Beaufort, South Carolina's Community Bible Church. We're in a biographical study of the prophet Elijah, a man devoted to serving God. Our passage is in 1st and 2nd Kings, but as we return to our study entitled Burning Bridges, we find ourselves in Luke 10 looking at the account of Mary and Martha. All of this is related to the reason Christians so often lose their zeal for serving the Lord. We've looked at various reasons, and as we pick up, Dr. Brogy notes that oftentimes it is related to not spending time with the Lord. If your service has become burdensome, and you've lost the joy for whatever kind of ministry God has given you, almost always it's indicative that you're not really spending time, not in a mechanical sense, but I mean just time with the Lord where he speaks to you and refreshes you. And very often what people then do is they just quit. I'm not serving anymore. Let someone else do it. They think that's the solution. They sit, soak, and they sour. They don't really serve. Very often people come into my office and Occasionally, what's the problem? I'm just worn out. I'm burned out. Let me ask you a question. Tell me about your devotional life. I mean, your time with the Lord. And almost always with an embarrassing look. You know, I don't really have one, Pastor. That's the real problem. Look at his counsel. One thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from you. There's two kinds of Christians who are sitting with me today. There are some who are very diligent, who want to serve with the best intentions, but they're doing it at the expense of spending time with Jesus, of being in close fellowship with him. And one thing is necessary. And the good part that Jesus underscores was listening to his word. Now, I know the Bible does not say, thou shalt have a daily quiet time. So I'm not talking about some rigid legalism here. But there are many, many, many passages throughout the Bible that affirm of our need to linger in the presence of God. Only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. And it will not be taken away from her because it yields fruitfulness. And whereas the person who serves out of an irritable, crabby, joyless spirit, they may be working their behind off but it will be wood, hay, and stubble at the judgment seat of Christ. So if you are to be a contributing disciple, there's a person that you are called to serve, to follow. In addition, the Scripture affirms a contributing disciple recognizes there's a people to serve. There's a person to follow, but there's a people to serve. Again, we read here, beginning in verse 20, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. And then again in verse 21, then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. 
So Elijah's first response to the call in that he, he wants to immediately minister to him. He's a servant. And when you follow the Lord and when you're really following him, you're going to be serving other people. And this man was usable because he had a servant's heart. Put out in the margin, would you, next to this verse, next to verse 21, 2 Kings 3.11. 2 Kings 3.11, let me read it to you. After God has taken Elijah up to heaven in a chariot ride, and he's raptured up into heaven, Jehoshaphat, the king of Israel, new king in place, will ask this question. Is there not a prophet of the Lord here? that we may inquire of the Lord by him. And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, and listen very carefully to his answer, because his description of Elisha the prophet is very telling of the kind of person he is. One of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shephard is here, who used to pour water in the hands of Elijah. That's a significant statement. He poured water on the hands of Elijah. That's humble service. You see, a Jew would have to have his hands ceremonially cleaned. And rather than Elijah having to go to the well and to draw his own water, Elisha would get the water such that every time he needed to eat, he would pour the water on his hands. And so he had a posture, he had an attitude of servanthood towards this man of God. And if you are ever going to be used of God, if you're ever going to do anything that is lasting and holy and eternal, among other things, you must be a servant. Listen to some of these verses, Galatians 5 and verse 13. Paul says, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not use your freedom. Don't don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serving one another. There's an assumption that we serve one another. Jesus said this in Matthew 23, 11, but the greatest among you shall be your servants. Or Peter said in 1 Peter 4 and verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. When God saved you, he gifted you. It's different from a natural talent like singing or a mechanical skill. You have a spiritual gift. And as you grow in Christ, that gift will begin to show itself, whatever it might be. It might be the gift of giving. It might be evangelism. It might be teaching, serving, helps, administration. But you have a gift. And just like a baby, as a baby grows, there are natural talents that God bred into them at the moment of conception begin to manifest themselves, even so in the spiritual realm. And so God wants to ideally match your giftedness with an area of responsibility. Though in the non-signed gifts in the New Testament, we all share a common responsibility. So you can't, as a cop-out, say, well, I don't have the gift of giving, so I don't tithe, or I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I don't share my faith. No, there's a common responsibility with all 16 non-signed gifts in the New Testament. But the assumption here is that we will serve one another. It's one of the many one another passages. We studied this one last week, remember? John 13, truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. This is a truth that if you remember, Jesus applies to other situations. A slave is not greater than his master, whether it's in persecution in John 15, whether it's in slander in Matthew 10, whether it's in discipleship in Luke 6, or here in John 13 in reference to a servant. If I, the master and the center, got down and washed your feet, served you, you ought to wash each other's feet. You ought to serve others. And so a contributing disciple is one who is willing to lay aside his dignity do the work of a servant. 
Paul said it this way, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if you want God to bless your life, then you need to be a contributing disciple. And a contributing disciple is a, recognizes there's a person to follow, there's a people to serve. Third and finally, a contributing disciple recognizes there's a price to pay. There's a price to pay. Elijah first follows the Lord by following his call to take Elijah's place. And in so doing, he becomes this man's servant. He ministers to him, but not without having to consider the price. Look again in verse 19. Elijah finds Elisha when he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him. I don't cut my yard with a bush hog because I don't have that much land. But this information that this writer gives tells us that this family has a lot of land. And some people have a lot of land and they are land poor. But this family has a lot of land and they are wealthy. How do I know? Because they have 12 pairs of oxen. Now, as you read in Scripture, sometimes you'll read in the law about barring things, and very often people would bar someone else's oxen because they didn't have enough money to own their own pair of oxen. Well, Elijah's, Elisha's family has 24 oxen, 12 that are yoked together in pairs, which says by biblical standards he was a very wealthy man. Let's keep reading into verse 21. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. He left the oxen and ran after Elisha. Elisha was saying, I will leave this and I will go and I will follow you. But in addition to wanting to show honor to his father and mother, which the fifth commandment teaches, continuing here in verse 20, please he asks, let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said, go back again, for what have I done to you? Now, that's an important Hebrew idiom. For what have I done to you? You go back to your parents, that's the right thing. But I want you to think very carefully what I just did for you when I put my mantle on your back. His immediate response is yes. He wants to go home and say goodbye. And please understand, he's not waffling. This is not some compromise on Elisha's part. He is going back out of respect to his parents to let them know that he was leaving, not to get permission to leave. This idiom, what have I done to you? Think hard, Elisha. Think about what I am doing by this act. Count the cost when I put this mantle on your back. Lord, you go home. And you think hard. It's a really important decision. He wants him to count the cost. He wants him, as the sermon title explores, to burn every bridge. So he returned from following him, verse 21, and took the pair of oxen. He didn't destroy all 12 pairs because he 
as a son was entrusted with one pair. One pair was his own. His daddy, I'm assuming, unless he had other brothers that we are not aware of, his daddy owned the rest. So he returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. You've heard about burning your bridges. Well, he's going to eat his bridge, so to speak. He seals the decision, and he makes it public. He slaughters the two oxen. He uses the wood of the yoke to create a fire to barbecue, and he invites all the neighbors to participate with him in this great feast. There's a new calling on his life, and he is willing to burn his bridges to get rid of every source of income that he would have had with his oxen and to follow Elijah. And by his action, he is saying to his parents, to his friends, that this ranch, these oxen, this plow is not as important to me as the call that God has placed on my life. He wants to please the Lord. Listen, if you want to please the Lord, it doesn't matter who you displease. And if you please man and you don't please God, well, it means nothing. All that matters is that we please the Lord. And if you're looking for some easy way, some cheap way, some lazy way to make a difference in the kingdom of God, you won't. I mean, it's rainy, it's cold. You look out the window, it's Sunday morning, you say to your wife, let's just live stream Dr. Brogy this morning. Have you ever done that? Don't answer. Now, the next day, it's just as cold and just as rainy. And you tell your boss, well, I decided not to go to work today. Why not? Well, it was cold and rainy. And I didn't feel like getting up. Or you say, you know, we had friends come unexpectedly out of town, and they wanted to go to the beach, so we went to the beach with them. Now, you wouldn't do that with your boss. But we'll do that with the living God who gave us life and breath and eternal life. You do what's important to you, and so every fall, every winter, we see 70,000, 80,000 fans in some stadium. It's cold, it's snowy, it's below zero sometimes. Some of them have no shirts on, and they're cheering their football team. You do what's important to you. So Christ asks us to count the cost. Hold your finger here. Go back to the Gospel of Luke chapter 9 for a moment. Go to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, uh, Jesus is walking along the road, and there's a large crowd that is with him. And in Luke 9, 57, someone said this to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, if you looked in the parallel account in Matthew chapter 8, you find out that this someone who made this statement was a scribe. And a scribe in Jesus' day was a person of wealth and reputation. It would carry the prestige of being the CEO of an organization or maybe a physician or an attorney or a politician or some big shot. And so Jesus knew this man's heart. He knew that his status and his comfort was more important to him than really following Jesus. A second man said to him in verse 59, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. 
Now, there's a Jewish burial custom that goes all the way back to the time of Moses. It was still in place in Christ's day. Usually the time someone died is the day you buried them. If you go to Israel today, if I died this morning, had a heart attack, and I was in Jerusalem and a Jew, and I had a heart attack here at this second service, I'd be buried before sundown. And if I was buried late in the day, I would definitively, absolutely, orthodox, non-orthodox, practicing, non-practicing, I would be baptized the very next day. That's why when you study the chronology on Lazarus' life and he had been dead four days, he stinketh, Lord. The day he died, as you read the text, they buried him. So when he says, oh, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father, it sounds like a reasonable excuse, except for the fact that his dad hadn't died yet. He's waiting around for the inheritance. And Jesus basically says, you have to choose. Jesus would not have dishonored that request if it were legitimate. Not to mention, if he had to deal with his dead daddy, ceremonially, he'd be unclean. And they were still under the old covenant, and Jesus practiced the old covenant until the new covenant is initiated on Golgotha. So Jesus persists with him, but he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Then a third fellow comes along. And this person, unlike the scribe who's protecting his reputation, who's in love with uh, this guy who's in love with riches, there's a third guy. Notice verse. Well, let me just read this verse first. Luke 14, 33. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. You might want to put that in the margin next to verse 60. None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Let me ask you a question. Has there ever been a time in your life where you said, God, everything I own, it's yours? It is already. God owns everything in the world. Psalm 24, 1. We're just stewards. But if you have not mentally in your mind before the Lord given everything that you have to him, then those things will own you. You won't own them. So this third man, verse 61, let me pick it up. I will follow you, Lord, but permit me first to say goodbye to those at home. Now, no doubt he may have been reasoning from our text. Hey, I heard this in the scriptures. Elisha put that on Elijah, and Elijah was a man of God, and he accepted that. You go home. Say bye to dad and mom. But Jesus, who could read his heart, said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. You see, this third man's problem is not riches. It's not reputation like the scribe. It's relationships. He loved his family more than he loved God. Years ago, like Jerry Stokes and I were in a home, and we shared the gospel with a young couple, and he seemed so open and so close to becoming a Christian, but his wife was pulling him away, and she was antagonistic. And so neither of them made a decision that night, and we got in the car, and I said, I, she was pulling on his heart, and he listened to her, and how do I know that? Because a week later, I bumped into him in Walmart, and I said, you know, it just seemed like you were so close to becoming a Christian. He said, well, I gave it a lot of thought. I said, well, what's the holdup? Well, my wife doesn't buy this stuff. 
and basically says, I buy my wife. Ten years go by, and I just recently bump into him again in Walmart. He knows who I am. I know who he is. The only difference is this time he's hostile. You see, you can love father and mother, wife, son, daughter more than God and miss the kingdom of God. May I remind you what Jesus said in John 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, that's an interesting verse because Jesus had a ministry that was founded on a way of love, not hate. And yet here he uses this word hate, but he's using it in a comparative sense as a hyperbole of sorts. It's pretty obviously what Jesus did not mean. He did not actually mean that you should break the fifth commandment, that you should dishonor your parents, that you should despise father and mother, the first commandment with a promise, Paul says. But he wants the difference between our love by comparison to our love for everyone else to be so great that you could almost say it is hatred. In fact, in the parallel text on another day, another time, he says the same thing, but in these words, in Matthew 10, 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Of course, the truth is, is that when you love Jesus, you will love your father and mother and brother and sister, not less but more. But he is clear that our love for him must supersede our love for everyone else. In fact, right before that, he said this in Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Again, typically, when you're born again, when you become a genuine disciple, you love your family more faithfully than you had ever done before. But understand, many people never enter into the kingdom of God because of another form of idolatry, and it is so subtle. You're going to become one of those born again? We've heard about those people at Community Bible Church. You're going to become one of them? And they begin to pressure them. Dad, I don't want to disappoint you. Well, you know, there's a decision that you need to make as a family. And their family members say, look, what we're asking you to do isn't all that bad. But it is for you because you understand God's standards. And you love Christ more than anyone else supremely. And you have to decide. And many people will never enter the kingdom of God because of pressure from other people. Someone asked a missionary one day, he said, do you like being missionaries? And he wasn't prepared for the answer the husband gave. He said, my wife and I love the people that we serve. It is so thrilling to us when people come and call Christ Lord and follow him but we don't especially like being missionaries. My wife and I don't especially like living on a dirt floor. We don't especially like traping through dung in the village every single day. We don't especially enjoy some of the dirty and filthy habits that people have. But as a man, to do nothing 
because he doesn't like something. God pities someone who makes a decision, he said, on like or dislike. He said, I am a missionary because I am following my Lord. Wilbur Chapman, the great 19th century evangelist, encountered William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, one day. And he said, General Booth, God has used you in an extraordinary way. What would you say the secret of your life and ministry is? And General Booth said this, and I quote, I will tell you the secret. God has all there is of me to have. There have been men and women who have had far greater opportunities than I, men and women whom God has gifted in a far greater way than I. But from the day I understood how much Jesus loved me, I gave all to him. My friend, God will do business with those who mean business. And if you want to be a contributing disciple, there's a person to follow, there's a people to serve, but there is a price to pay. Would you say this morning, I don't want to just be a member of Community Bible Church. I want to be a contributing disciple. I want to make a difference in the kingdom of God for all of eternity. Will you say that? You can make a difference with your life. Now, Holy Father, we thank you that this is not simply what you have said. This is what you are saying, that all Scripture is God-breathed. It is profitable for our instruction that the man, the woman of God, might be adequately equipped for every good work. Thank you for the lessons that we are learning from Elijah the, Pro Elijah the prophet and Elisha. I pray today, Father, for someone who is just a curious disciple. They're here. They're live streaming because they're curious. They're listening, but they've never made a commitment to trust Jesus as Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you receive sinful men, that whoever will call upon your name will be saved. Help someone, whatever the cost may be, even if it means total rejection of their family. Help them to see what is really important in life and help them to know that even the rejection of their family and their continued love might be the very tool and goad that you would use to bring that family into the kingdom. Help someone, Father, in simple childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, it's easy to take a sense of pride that we've crossed that line, that we're members of the kingdom, that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but to ignore that you always call us to go further and deeper, that there are hundreds of commands in the New Testament to your saved people to go further. So help us to pay the price, whatever it might be, whatever hatred or persecution or slander or inconvenience that might come into our life, help us to live for Jesus, for his name's sake. Amen. To listen again to today's message entitled Burning Bridges, part of our biographical study of the prophet Elijah, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program ELI-6. Search the Scriptures is a ministry devoted to introducing people to Christ 
and to growing Christians in their walk with their Savior. If you can help support STS with a one-time or recurring gift, click the Give button online at searchthescriptures.org or on the STS app or call 877-787-7478. Thank you in advance for your generosity. Tomorrow we begin a look at the justice of God as we continue our study of Elijah and search the scriptures. <music>